Well, thank you very much, Faisal, and, and thanks also to the seminar for inviting me. It's great to be able to uh, sort of cross some, some regional boundaries here uh, and, and integrate South and Southeast Asia. And um, so this is kind of work in process and in, in progress that I'm working with another uh, colleague on as, as we look at, obviously, this really pressing issue of um, Buddhist violence against uh, Muslims and other non-Buddhist non groups. And, and, you know, it seems as if there have to be connections between uh, the rise of Bodu Balasena and, and 969 um, in Myanmar. And, and I want to get into that in, in a little more detail today to kind of look at at the similarities between the movements, their ideologies, their tactics, their orientations, um, you know, what tangible connections there are that we can point to, but what are some of the frameworks within which we can understand um, what they do and how they've arisen? So what I'm going to do is I'm going to start out talking a little bit about um, the, the sort of movements and activities uh, in each country, um, first Myanmar and then Sri Lanka talk about the connections between the two countries, both historical and contemporary connections. I'm gonna do what may seem like a sort of basic exercise of comparisons, differences, similarities and differences, but I think there's a lot that we can tease out in terms of the, the localization of both Buddhist nationalism and anti-Muslim activism in, in both. And, and I'll end up with some conclusions uh, first that others have drawn and then a framework that I find to be a helpful complement in, in understanding uh, sort of why this, this anti-Muslim Buddhist nationalism has, has arisen in, in, in both of these countries in rather different circumstances. So let's start out looking at, at Myanmar. So after about five decades of international isolation, repressive rule by a succession of military governments, Myanmar began a gradual transition towards democracy um, with the handover of power to a quasi-civilian government in March 2011. Now, the new government has instituted a surprising array of reforms, releasing dozens of political prisoners, relaxing restrictions on the press, passing laws allowing for peaceful demonstrations, pursuing ceasefires and political settlements with non-state ethnic armed groups, uh, lifting restrictions on opposition parties, and They've also created space for what has been, at least thus far, an unexpectedly active and outspoken parliament. Now, of course, each one of these encouraging elements carries with it a sobering counterpart where we've seen new arrests of activists who are protesting land grabs and environmental destruction, um, th these things that have, have accompanied large-scale development projects around the country. We've seen renewed conflict uh, between the military and some ethnic armed organizations, and it seems to have been instigated by the military in these cases. Uh, and, and also, I think it's important to note that the, the model of growth that's being touted in the country and the imposition of a particular idea of rule of law are also leading to dispossession of land and indebtedness for a, lot, a significant proportion of the rural population. One of the other things that's emerged from this political uh, transformation has been new communal tensions. Um, and I think caused largely by the uncertainties of the transition, but expressed primarily through religious conflict and religious grievances. So in June 2012, we saw riots in western Rakhine state in Myanmar, and, and these were initially between Rakhine Buddhists and Muslim Rohingya, the Rohingya being the... Um, uh, kind of crudely, the, the lowest hanging fruit uh, in Southeast Asia in terms of human rights uh, and, and citizenship and inclusion. Um, 
and I, I think a lot of us were surprised to see those tensions expand out from uh, sort of violence towards Rohingya to broader violence against uh, directed against Muslims um, in cities across the country. So beginning in March 2013, we started to see more anti-Muslim activity in general. And so a, a, a reframing, right? not just anti-Rohingya, not just directed towards this group that was considered to not be part of the nation um, and to not be citizens of the country, but now against Muslims more, more generally. And we've seen sporadic sort of rioting and violence since that time. Uh, just in the last week, week and a half, reports of, of a new um, set of killings, um, up to maybe 40 Rohingya villagers. Uh, and this was, uh, from the evidence that we have so far, seems to have been um, committed uh, by a group including local villagers and security forces, although this is something that the, the Burmese government has, has denied. So let's talk about the role of monks here, who I think have um, on the whole played a visibly negative role in this current situation, particularly feeding into and organizing anti-Muslim campaigns. The face of uh, Buddhist monastic mobilization against the monastic community has been Uwirathu, the monk who is who you may be able to see here on the on the PowerPoint, um, and you've probably seen his picture sort of everywhere. And he's a monk abbot who's who's based in Mandalay, and I would sort of character a lot of people characterize him as the leader of 969 and the head of these groups, and that's actually not quite a correct characterization, which I'll come back to. But I do think that what he is. He's an example of uh, this common model of a nationalist leader who fights for the expanded political freedoms for this uh, for the, the national group, for some citizens in the national group, but then uses religious reasoning to justify the exclusion of other groups considered to be outside the national community. And alongside Uwarathu, uh, again, not the group that he's necessarily the leader of, but there's the rise of the 969 movement. You can see their uh, logo down here on the, on the PowerPoint. And I think we should understand 969, this is a difference that I'm going to come back to uh, later, as, as a loose network of kind of pro-Buddhist in some cases, and anti-Muslim in other cases, organizations and individuals who have as their primary uh, interest uh, the protection and promotion of Buddhism, particularly against foreign threats, right? That could be internal populations that are conceived of as foreign or any other threats to, to the religion, which could include criticism from Western observers in Western countries. So uh, really briefly, 969 is a sort of numerological uh, shorthand. Nine are the number of attributes of the Buddha, six of uh, the, the Dharma, his teachings, and nine great attributes of the Sangha, the, the Buddhist community of monks. And so 969 functions as a sort of shorthand, not and and isn't a new symbol, right? I mean it's been repurposed in this case, but this is something that's that's been a kind of Buddhist shorthand for the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha um, for a long time in the country. Now um, <clears throat> Buddhists have also kind of reconfigured it not only as a shorthand for uh, for, for Buddhism, but also as a symbolic counter to the number 786. And now um, within a lot of Southeast Asian countries, 786 is this numerological representation of the, the Bismillah, Rahama, uh, Rahman, and Nirahim, right? That, um, and it functions as a sort of shorthand for Muslim-owned business, uh, 
a halal place, right? Something like that. And so 969 has positioned itself as the counterpart to that, right? Both on a socioeconomic level right? um, and in a sort of higher numerological level. And so one of the things that 969 is called for most prominently is a boycott of Muslim-owned businesses and called for Buddhists to sort of buy Buddhist, as it were. They've also um, pushed for the passage of a law that would restrict interreligious marriages, particularly between Buddhists and Muslims. So a few things to kind of note here. I think there's a challenge here of uh, separating anti-Muslim activities from pro-Buddhist activities, right? And this is something that's really important as we think about, um, you know, what the, the kind of support that 969 gets, right? So, so there are going to be a lot of Buddhists who are interested in promoting Buddhism, right? But not necessarily in anti-Muslim activities, but their support, sometimes monetary, sometimes uh, their sort of uh, uh, non-material support, also goes to 969 in other ways, because 969 is doing sort of good Buddhist things. We also want to think about the contemporary political considerations. 2015 elections coming up in Myanmar with a majority Buddhist population, it's really challenging for, challenging if not impossible, for uh, Buddhist politicians to speak out against a movement like 969 that is maybe anti-Muslim in some cases, but also um, pro-Buddhist, as I've said. And then finally, we want to talk about the ambivalence, the ambivalent attitudes towards monks in politics. And this is a real contrast with Sri Lanka, where we've, we, we know that there's a strong and um, sort of relatively healthy tradition of monastic involvement in politics, monastic political parties in the country, you know, monks doing everything up to assassinating political leaders in Sri Lanka, right? But in, in Myanmar, it's, it's much more of an ambivalent attitude where in, at certain moments of crisis, there's some degree of political support for monastic involvement in politics, but a, a general concern that, that monks ought not be regularly involved in politics or that there's, there are certain activities that might be seen as appropriate. The one thing that is, however, I think true almost across the board in, in, in Burmese society is that there's general agreement on not publicly criticizing monks or the actions of the Sangha, right? So this is another... Uh, dynamic that restricts the ability of, of Buddhists, whether other monks or, or, or Buddhist leaders or other religious leaders, from standing out publicly and publicly criticizing uh, the 969 monks in this case. Okay, so let's go on, let's talk a little bit about the Sri Lankan case and Botu Balasena. <clears throat> so Botu Balasena is the, the, the kind of primary group that has emerged as a, as a pro-Buddhist, anti-Muslim uh, group. This translates roughly as Buddhist power force, um, and, and, and its sort of stated goals are, are, are protecting Buddhist interests, particularly against non-Buddhists that, in, in their conceptualization, seek to disempower Buddhists. It's an organization formed in July 2012 and is much more centrally organized than 969. Right? One of the key differences here is that 969 is a loose network um, that, that basically has a number and a logo and an ethos that people can tap into, but there is no central organization, whereas Botu Balasena is, is an actual organization started by, um, by two monks, uh, Kerama uh, Wimala Zoti 
and Galagoda Ate Nanasara. And I apologize, I'm a Myanmar specialist, so my pronunciation of Sinhalese monk names comes out sounding like Burmese, probably. Um, <clears throat> but the second one uh, is is up here giving an interview uh, on, on TV. And, and Botu Balasena essentially, in, in essence, uh, sort of broke away from, from JHU, another nationalist Sinhalese party, uh, claiming that they weren't hardline enough, weren't protecting Sinhalese interests. And, and it seems clear, although Botu Balasena, like 969, has kind of shadowy connections and, and, and a, a, um, a difficult-to-track set of networks, um, they do seem to have significant international connections. And, and one story that, that we've heard in relation to them is that the organization was set up following a visit to Norway by some of these monks and, and some other political and religious figures in the country that was designed actually as an interreligious uh, peace-building visit. So some of these monks met with the, the members of the, uh, the Tamil population in Norway, and upon returning from that trip, uh, intended as, as sort of peace-building... Well, this may not last here. We'll see how that... We'll see how that works. Um, from from this this trip that was intended as as peace building, they proceeded to form this group that has been uh, sort of one of not necessarily an anti-Tamil group, but incredibly anti-Muslim and anti-Christian. <clears throat> there are some other groups associated with Botu Balasena, um, uh, groups like Sinhala Ravaya and and Ravana Balaya, and and. It's, it's kind of hard to see exactly how these groups fit in. There have been accusations from some scholars and analysts that these are essentially just front organizations that allow for uh, the, allow them to commit violence uh, without it being attached to Botu Balasena. Do we, I don't know if there's, maybe, do you think there's a power cord? Do you want to, there is a power cord. It's okay. Because it's, it's suggesting that there's only, I don't think it's on the, Okay, well, sorry, we'll let Faisal keep messing with that, and I <clears throat> apologize. I, everything that's on the PowerPoint, they're just a couple of, you know, sort of pictures and things that, that are things that I'm not going to be saying, so you'll hear it all. Um, but there is a really hilarious picture that I hope we can, we can see later. Um, anyway, so so some analysts have suggested that, that these other groups are essentially just fronts for Bodu Balasena to be able to... Um, you know, sort of uh, push for the commission of violence without it being attached there, and that's something that I'll I'll come back to maybe um, in relation to to nine six nine. And the rhetoric that we see coming from from Botu Balasena and these other organizations is is about fear towards the Muslim population, and in particular, it's a kind of demographically expressed fear, right? Fear about Muslim populations growing, increasing, taking over, um, and this is common not only in the Botu Balasena narrative, also in the 969 narrative, and in particular, uh, monks who are regularly making historical claims of, of questionable veracity. Uh, so so Botu Balasena and 969 monks uh, are always talking about the ways in which Malaysia, Indonesia, Pakistan, Afghanistan, all used to be Buddhist countries. And are now, you know, have, are now being, or those obviously have been taken over um, by Muslims. And and obviously, those those claims are not necessarily true. I mean, there's a kernel of truth in the fact that there used to be Buddhist polities 
or sort of political organizations in some of those places, right? But but this, these are claims that kind of get get figured into the Buddhist public conscious conscious in um, uh, in both of these countries. So if we look at what Bodhisattva has been doing, um, I, because they are a more organized group. Um, and because they have a sort of a, a national agenda, they have local agendas, they're, they're looking at specific political, um, political topics, they, they have quite a few more sort of activities that they've been doing over the last few years. There are regular attacks on, on mosques, attacks on, on also individuals and organizations. Uh, in particular, some of their attacks on Christians have accused Christian pastors and churches of forced conversion. Um, there are boycotts on uh, Muslim-owned businesses, also physical attacks on Muslim-owned businesses as well. Um, the, one of their most visible campaigns has been against halal certification. And, and it's interesting the way that they look at halal certification because they've offered two different arguments against it. So one is a kind of religio-cultural argument that this is something that is, that is Muslim, right? That is not appropriate for Buddhists and, and that Buddhists shouldn't have to do or deal with in some way. They've also raised an economic argument about prices, right? And that, um, that, that are, they've argued that halal certification and the need to, to do halal certification adds an extra cost to the products, the, the food products that, that Buddhists are eventually going to buy. Now, this uh, claim has apparently been debunked by another organization that actually crunched the numbers and said, well, this, uh, you know, halal certification was um, voluntary, actually, at that point, um, but they put enough pressure on the government to uh, force the organization that had been leading the halal organization, or, sorry, the halal labeling to make changes so that they wouldn't put those labels on any products for sale in Sri Lanka. They would only put it on uh, on labels, for the, the label on products for sale uh, in the Middle East where it was required by law. They have made claims that uh, university exams and the, the results from exams are biased in favor of Muslims. They've been campaigning against uh, a separate Islamic law system. I'll come back to the university exam bit in a, in a moment. Um, pushing for a ban on burqas, abayas as um, symbols of Islamic fundamentalism. Uh, criticism also of non-Buddhist monuments um, or, or structures on what they have conceived of as Buddhist sites, right? So, um, you know, so there are a few mosques that are near temples uh, or, or, um, or other, you know, monasteries, other Buddhist holy sites, and they've pushed for the, the demolition of those. They have conducted a campaign on behalf of Sinhalese workers who are working in the Middle East, particularly uh, Sinhalese Buddhist women working in Muslim countries. They've been critical of uh, the treatment of Buddhists in Bangladesh. Um, their criticism of the treatment of Sinhalese Buddhists who, uh, who, who work in, in Muslim countries uh, rings a bit false and a bit hypocritical given that their campaigns have been, you know, against, uh, focused on the oppression and the repression of a religious minority within Sri Lanka as well. But, um, you know, but they're, they, they have tapped into their a narrative that is very common in South and Southeast Asia, right, of the mistreatment of workers who go to the Middle East um, from those regions. But they also, they, they haven't, and I, again, I think this is an important um, framing question here, they haven't only sort of been doing anti-Muslim and anti-Christian activities. They've, they've configured themselves as the guardians of Buddhist morality 
as well. So in at least one case, there was a sort of vigilante action of monks uh, against another monk who they thought had, was not keeping his morality, who was accused of embezzling some funds, I believe. They've, um, they've had a campaign against family planning, um, vasectomies, tubal ligations, both on religious moral grounds, right, that this is killing and not appropriate for Buddhists to do, but also on demographic grounds, right, that if, that if Buddhists are the ones, if, if there's a fear of the Buddhist population being overwhelmed, then um, then it's necessary for Buddhists to continue procreating and not put any limits on themselves. Uh, they've, they've been very outspoken about this trend of Buddha bars, uh, which some of you may have, have heard of. This, and this, this sounds, I mean, it sounds kind of silly, but it, but it, it, it is a reflection of, of, you know, one pretty strong fundamentalist Buddhist attitude towards uh, kind of taking the name of the Buddha in vain, essentially. And so these Buddha bars are like, um, I mean, they're bars that take the name of the Buddha. It, if you travel in South and Southeast Asia, you may have seen their, their mixed CDs. It's like a whole kind of chill house music style, right? Buddha bar music is, is there. But so they've objected um, to the use of, of these Buddha bars and the use of the name there. And they've also conducted educational uh, trainings for children, um, business seminars, uh, like training programs for Buddhist businessmen to not only, you know, work for, from their perspective, work with their own kind, but also, um, you know, how to do your business in accordance with Buddhist morality. So again, the challenge here is in separating what in some cases is clearly an anti-Muslim, anti-Christian agenda from what is also at times clearly a kind of pro-Buddhist um, organization and something that, that Buddhists might easily get behind. And, and so the tactics uh, particularly for, for Bodhi Balasena, but 969 has done a bit of this as well. One of their main tactics appears to be making wild accusations um, that, that are quickly proven wrong, right? but, but last long enough to, to get into the public consciousness and to also fit in with the prejudices and assumptions that people already have. So a few examples here, um, the, the, the claim that the university exams were biased in favor of Muslims. They, you know, stormed into to these offices and demanded that, that everything be canceled and, uh, you know, and, and that there be an inquiry and, and there was, and clearly there were no problems, but they had already, you know, disrupted the process and also gotten out this idea that, that there's bias, right, in, in these exams. Um, <clears throat> they also made a claim that, that calves were being slaughtered in the uh, halal certification um, buildings uh, and, and, and actually made this claim so many times that they got the police to go and do an investigation. And again, it was debunked, but um, fit in, added fire to this narrative that, um, you know, that, that something was wrong and that this was, that, that what Muslims were doing vis-a-vis -vis food was not in accordance with Buddhist values, with legal practices, everything like that. So we've got a really sort of broad picture then of, of 969 and some of what it's done and Bodhi Balasena and some of what it's done. I want to shift to talk about connections between the two countries and potentially between the, the two movements. <clears throat> um, oh, and this was where this was where I had this really great picture. Um, so, uh, yeah, I'm going to describe it. It's, it's going to be so even funnier that way, I'm sure. <laughs> um, so most of you have probably seen the Time magazine cover 
uh, with Uwirathu, the, the monk that said that the face of Buddhist terror, uh, and this, this caused a big storm in, in Myanmar, was banned there, uh, actually um, led to a kind of backlash. And, and a lot of people who were critical of, of Uwirathu to begin with um, ha- came to his defense because they saw the Western media as, as kind of not just criticizing him, but criticizing Buddhism. Um, and, and so I had a picture of that one, and someone has cleverly photoshopped um, the Sri Lankan president, uh, President Rajapaksa's face over there as well. So you've, so you've got two different versions of this, the face of Buddhist terror in, in Myanmar and then the face of Buddhist terror in Sri Lanka. It's, it's, a, it's a great photoshop. Look at, find it on the internet somewhere, and it's really great. Uh, so we've got long historical connections, religious connections between the two countries. <clears throat> the the sort of semi-mythical, um, but but attested to in in the chronicles, um, in the in the Sinhalese chronicles, the transmission of Theravada Buddhism from Ceylon to mainland Southeast Asia, uh, potentially as early as the third century BCE, from from the Buddhist king, well, from the king named Ashoka, who has been claimed by Buddhists, uh, present-day Buddhists, to, to be Buddhist, um, but but. Even more recently, the the reinvigorating of, of ordinations between the two uh, regions. So um, so the ordina- ordination kind of came back for purification purposes from Burma to Ceylon in the 11th century, and then back again to both Burma and to the what is now contemporary Thailand, uh, the Ayutthaya Kingdom in the 14th century. Um, so a lot of religious connections there. Uh, so I, I, again. Um, these were movements of kind of reinvigoration of, of these monastic uh, ordination lineages. Probably the most recent uh, cross-regional gathering of uh, and the connections between Theravada Buddhists in, in these two countries was from 1954 to 1956, where Unu, then um, the leader of, of Burma, convened the Six Buddhist uh, Synod in Yangon. And so 2,500 monks from across the Theravada world and beyond came to Rangoon to um, these Buddhist synods bring together monks to clarify and correct the scriptures and make sure essentially that everybody's working from the same script. Um, So today there are actually much more limited interactions, really mostly limited to uh, the field of education and mostly unidirectional. So monks from Myanmar are going to Sri Lanka to study. Um, and monks from Myanmar also end up going to Thailand, to India, other places in Southeast Asia. But we really see very few monks from Sri Lanka going to Myanmar to study, uh, probably partly as a result of the, the military rule, the Bud- all of the university systems, including Buddhist universities in Myanmar, haven't really been up to um, high enough quality that Sri Lankan monks would, would really want to go there. The one thing that we do sometimes see Sri Lankan monks coming to Myanmar for uh, is for meditation purposes, because Myanmar still has some of the, the sort of foremost um, places in, in the world for doing Vipassana meditation in particular. We've seen occasional high-level military-to-military contact, and that's something that fuels uh, the, the, the rumors that there have to be connections, there has to be a kind of invisible hand, uh, you know, both within each of these countries and then across the region as well. Um, uh, some of the most recent ones, Tan Shui, the former dictator of, of Myanmar, uh, visited in, in 2000, 2009, and the Sri Lankan president had visited um, earlier that year in 2009 as well. Um, but, but there really isn't that strong of a diplomatic relationship between uh, the two, nor significant 
business connections or, or investments. Um, uh, a, a Sri Lankan friend of mine who, who lives in Yangon on and off goes to the Sri Lankan embassy and it's, you know, there's never anybody there. There's, you know, it's not one of those presences, even now after the opening up that, that there's, um, you know, that there's a lot sort of going on between the two countries. So we hear always these, these rumors of high-level financing, of high-level support. And it's something I'm going to come back to um, a, a, a bit later, but we really don't find much evidence of that. And, it, and it's not surprising, mostly because of the opaque nature uh, of financing in religious organizations in, in Sri Lanka and, then, and particularly in Myanmar. They're not necessarily subject to laws on transparency, on disclosure of funds. Uh, you know, if you make a donation to a, a monastery or a temple in Myanmar, you don't have to, no, no Buddhist who, Burmese Buddhist who gives a donation is going to expect the, the uh, Sayadaw, the, the head monk of the place to come back with you know, a sort of receipt or some kind, some statement saying what they um, what they spent the money on or anything like that. So, what I'm getting at here is that while there probably are some sources of funding that are given for anti-Muslim purposes, which it's hard to discern, there are probably also a lot of sources of funding coming from Buddhists who see the pro-Buddhist activities of these groups and want to support things like that, or giving money to uh, a particular monk at a certain monastery who isn't necessarily a prominent face of 969, and that money goes to a different monastery or a different um, you know, religious organization in Myanmar and then can be used for 969 purposes. It, it's, I think, going to be virtually impossible to track any of that, but we should be aware of the, of the, the complexities of, of the, the funding there and also, you know, that it might not only be coming from anti-Muslim Buddhists. This is kind of the, the upshot there. In terms of, of broader connections these days, of, of visualizing or, or conceptualizing the broader Theravada world, there really isn't a lot of it. Um, Sirigu Seyadal, who is one of the, probably the most popular monk in Myanmar these days, founded an organization a few years back uh, designed for the preservation of Theravada Buddhism, but it's not really regionally focused. It focus almost, focuses almost exclusively on, on Burmese activities. Um, and in Myanmar in particular, consciousness of the Theravada label is not really extensive. I mean, there's recognition that, yes, Sri Lanka, Thailand, Cambodia, Laos are, are all in the same uh, tradition, but Theravada in general usage in, in Myanmar, to the degree that anybody uses it, is used to distinguish kind of what many people see as sort of proper or uh, Buddhism in opposition to Mahayana Buddhism or local kind of spirit practices, animistic practices, things like that. And, and so apart from an awareness that there are these other countries that, um, that are some of the few remaining sort of Buddhist countries in the world, there isn't really this kind of there. There hasn't been this kind of pan Buddhistic, uh, or sorry, pan Theravada sense. And you know, despite the presence of rumors and, and the persistence of rumors and claims that there are connections between these groups, there really doesn't seem to be any evidence uh, that anyone's been able to point to that shows any sort of collaboration or even I might add much awareness of each other's activities. Right? So. There, 
a number of journalists uh, and, and scholars who who are going to both of the countries, right? Who are asking Uratu and, and the Bodhubalasena monks, well, what you know, what about what's going on in 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 Myanmar or in Sri Lanka? And th there's nothing that that um, that we've really seen that indicates a not just a degree of collaboration, but a degree of awareness of what's actually going on in in the other places. And and just an anecdote that I think really illustrates this well. I was talking with a. a um, a colleague who was just in Sri Lanka two weeks ago doing some interviews with top Bodu Balasena monks. And, and he asked, you know, well, what do you think about, about a sort of Theravada regional uh, alliance or something like that? And this monk said, oh, that'd be a, that'd be a great idea. But, but those Burmese monks in 969, they're a little too violent for us, right? which is funny in a lot of ways, right? But I, I think the further point is that <clears throat> The, the monks who, who kind of claim to represent 969 in Myanmar are constantly, constantly trying to separate themselves from the violence that has been committed against Muslims in that country. And, and you know, the connections are, we don't, it's not like we have, uh, you know, footage of 969-related monks killing Muslims, right? We have footage of 969-related monks preaching in a town, and two weeks later, there's a riot against, against Muslims. So, the 969 monks use that to distance themselves from any uh, responsibility for that violence. But I think if there were collaboration and if there were closer communication, then the Botu Balasena monks would be echoing that that uh, presentation, right? Echoing that that those denials of responsibility for violence, rather than rather than suggesting that that their only source of understanding of 969 is from the media that presents it as violent and and advocating for violence. Does that make sense? So I, I think that there's there's enough in their characterizations of each other to suggest that they're not working together and they don't really have a sense of what's going on and what what what's motivating things in the other places. Okay, so so let's talk then about some similarities uh, and, and then some differences between these these groups. So most of them all right, sorry, both of them are, are either monk-led or have prominent monks as, as their sort of public faces. The executive committee of Bodhu Balasena is all monks except for one lay person. Uh, we've seen mostly monks as the public face of 969, although that could start to change because the State Sangha Mahanayaka Council, which is the um, group that sort of legislates for monks in Myanmar, uh, made a ruling that said that monks couldn't continue to use 969 for these sorts of activities. That was a really vague ruling, right? And essentially, I think, designed to protect the reputation of Buddhism rather than to protect the, the lives and livelihoods of Muslims in the country. But what was interesting is, is the day after the Sangha Mahanayaka Council made that ruling, some of the leading 969-related monks turned around and said, well, this is great that they said that, but what they said, or the, the jurisdiction of the Sangha Mahanayaka Council only extends to monks and monastic organizations. So we'll continue to do what we've done, but we'll just make monastic and lay organizations to do it because the Sangha Mahanayaka Council can't tell us, can't tell lay people what to do. So I think we'll start to see more lay activity in, in 969, but it's important to understand that by having monks out in front, that circumscribes the ability of, of the state 
to criticize them, of the state to, to um, bring uh, any kind of action against them, or of lay people, again, to, to criticize the leaders of these movements because monks are held in such high esteem and there's such a social prohibition against um, publicly criticizing monks. So both of the organizations um, you know, put Buddhism in this position to be protected, right? the protection of Buddhism, of the Buddhist community, of Buddhist morals, of Buddhist women. Um, and, and they speak a lot about um, protecting the sasana, which is, is this uh, word that refers not just to the Buddhist teachings, not just to the monks, not just to the lay people, but the whole community, right? the very existence of the Buddhist teachings. And th this is going to be a critical point that I come back to um, at the end. But despite the fact that they have this Buddhist morality focus, it's also, um, they've been very particular and selective in what moral issues they choose. And so various people have pointed out the blind spot that, for example, Bodhu Balasena has in um, Sri Lanka with regard to casinos and other potentially immoral projects that they don't criticize and that their supporters actually have strong ties to. Um, uh, but they've chosen to pick up on, on other moral issues. 969 has, has been um, strongly pro-Buddhist, strongly anti-Muslim, strongly concerned about the, the destruction of Buddhist values, but also hasn't, for example, really, uh, none of the monks have spoken out about uh, the development paradigm um, sort of currently being enacted in Myanmar or the, the, the potential moral degradation that could come along with, with economic development and, and things like that. Um, so all of these, they, they've, they've all been consistently, as I said, doing these pro-Buddhist, pro-sasana building activities. They've been criticizing um, or willing to criticize political parties and leaders who they see as not protecting Buddhism enough or even potentially favoring um, Muslims or other minority groups. And, and I think this has been particularly true for Bote Balasena, although we've seen more of a willingness among 969 monks to work with political parties in Myanmar, possibly because they don't have monk parties and they're not supposed to be involved in the electoral system. Um, but the primary political party that's been the, the vehicle for them to get their marriage restriction legislation into the parliament has been the National Democratic Force, the NDF, which uh, some of you may know is a breakaway party from the National League for Democracy, Don Sensuchi's party, um, and has at times configured itself as a pro-democracy party, but clearly is also kind of anti-plural, anti-liberal in some of its uh, stances. And, and they've, they've really tried to assert, in, not just protecting Buddhism, but asserting, demanding the Buddhist character of the national community in each of these places. Um, and they've, they've sort of posited that in, in both of these cases as a fear of the minority communities, right? particularly Muslims in the um, in the Burmese case, but Muslims and, and Christians, uh, Tamils to a much less degree in the Sri Lankan case. But they, they've formulated their grievances as if uh, Muslims, for example, in Sri, in Sri Lanka are receiving special privileges, right? That, that protections afforded, that the idea that Muslim, uh, that Islamic law could be operative or that halal certification uh, is acceptable. Um, they've configured that as a special privilege for minority groups of course, we've talked about the concern for demographic changes, a real concern with minority-owned businesses. Um, and, and you can really see this physically in, in the layout. Some people have pointed out the ways in which in, in Colombo, um, the central business areas are dominated by Muslim-owned and Tamil-owned um, businesses. And so it, it feels and looks apparently very 
um, sort of Islamic dominated. And, uh, and in Yangon, most of the major construction firms are owned by Muslim families, right? So, and, and so you see, again, you, you sort of see these very tangible indicators of an Islamic presence that put in this whole narrative of uh, demographic change and socioeconomic worry um, becomes very compelling. So as I said, we see these boycott campaigns, um, these buy Buddhist campaigns, and both I think have been effectively tapping into um, a glo the global anti-Muslim discourse, right? That I think fits in with the, the global war on terror, but they've been doing so in a very general way, right? And and uh, not necessarily with any sort of factual grounding. So you'll see Bodu Balasena or 969 monks um, listing off a group uh, or different groups of Muslims in in the country, right? And th these are this is meant to be a sort of scare scare list. So they'll say there are Salafis and Sufis and Sunnis, right? And and obviously that none of those groups are necessarily connected to anything sort of violent or necessarily connected to anything violent or scary. But their their audience hears these words that circulate in connection with. Muslims and in connection with this discourse, and, and again, sort of reinforcing um, this without any kind of factual grounding. Uh, they've used social media uh, significantly as a way of spreading rumors, but social media, I think importantly in both of the countries, complements the already existing monastic networks. Uh, and so we saw in 2007 in Myanmar during the Saffron Revolution how effective monastic networks were for spreading around information, um, you know, for, for for getting out information, for, for getting out news and things like that. And um, so you've got already existing, incredibly effective, low-tech networks that can also spread this. Obviously, much more internet penetration in uh, Sri Lanka. The other potentially interesting thing that there's there's a bit of evidence on, and some, some folks are, are doing work on this right now in Myanmar, is, bless you, um, there, there's really limited internet access in Myanmar, right? So so first everybody said, well, uh, 969 and, and anti-Muslim things are, are spreading through Facebook and through YouTube. And and we thought, okay, well, that makes sense. And then we stopped and we said, well, actually, you know, how are these people in these villages that don't have much internet access actually getting this? Well, so it turns out that one way that they may be getting it, it's kind of mobile to mobile uh, sharing, right? So, so you've got one person who's in Yangon with a good uh, internet connection who downloads a bunch of videos uh, or a bunch of sermons from monks and then goes back to the village, takes it to his or her friends, who, many of whom have mobile phones but don't necessarily, you know, can't connect to Wi-Fi or something like that. And then, then they, they either do that cool clicky thing where you put the phones together and it, and it goes across on droids. I mean, many of the, the Myanmar phones are on the Android network. Um, or they just connect them and they share these videos through that. So again, a kind of low-tech, high-tech transmission of uh, a lot of the materials that are spreading, again, rumors and, and anti-Muslim um, slogans. There is, I think, some there's evidence of some degree of cooperation with the security forces in both of these cases, right? Um, although in Sri Lanka, it looks much more like um, they have high-level patrons who just aren't really going to prosecute them for, for doing uh, bad things, for breaking the law, for attacking uh, Muslims or, or, or Christians. Um, 
And in, in Myanmar, I think it's really important for us to kind of disaggregate what what probably is and probably isn't happening. So so a lot of people have have suggested that there are still that there's a, as I said before, a kind of invisible hand, right? That, that members of, of the military government, the current military government, or the current military or the former military government have been guiding these protests in some ways. And, and I think it's really hard for us to point to any evidence that that specifically is happening. But what I do think sort of makes a lot of sense is that the former military government in Myanmar had you know, organized paramilitary groups of thugs that they could send out to attack democratic protesters, right? And mem members of the former military government who have now transitioned into civilian positions, who have some economic or social or political position there, may not be acting on the orders of someone very high up in the government, may be acting according to their local interests, their local economic interests, but they still have access to the networks of, of these thugs or paramilitaries, right? So I don't think we've seen enough evidence of kind of state collusion at the highest levels, right? But I think people connected to the state have, have definitely been encouraging this violence in Myanmar or orchestrating this violence in Myanmar using the kind of, we could maybe call this like the, the legacies of, of the former um, military government there. If we move on to some differences as well, I, I think one of the, the key things here is to recognize that Botu Balasena is, um, is a much more organized, central, unified group, whereas 969, as I said, is a loose network, not necessarily coordinated. It's sort of founders, the people who sort of rejuvenated and repurposed this logo say there's no leader. They have no control over how people use the logo, right? So there's really limited kind of central organizing among uh, 969 groups. Uh, there are some differences in the traditions of monastic political involvement, right? Of course, we've seen significant mo monastic involvement in politics in Sri Lanka since at least the 1950s, um, but it's much less accepted and, and the boundaries are much more circumscribed in Myanmar. The context of Buddhist nationalism, I think, is also different. So again, since the 1950s, at least, there's been a solid and persistent and consistent movement of um, Sinhalese Buddhist nationalism. And we can point, we can also look back a little further to the Buddhist revival in the 1920s under Anagarika Dhammapala um, that had maybe some anti-Western, anti-colonial orientations, but really was much more of a kind of revitalization of Buddhism and, and drew actually on a lot of Western uh, sort of organizing techniques and things like that as well. In Myanmar, we had a Buddhist movement, a national Buddhist movement that started in the teens, 20s, and 30s, but really quickly transitioned into a kind of secular uh, movement taken over by nationalist leaders. And we've still got Buddhist, Buddhist symbolism, uh, rhetoric, and politics, but, but because of the military uh, government, it's been a sort of de facto Buddhist nationalism, right? And it hasn't necessarily been on the surface of popular politics, uh, despite maybe a few outbreaks of sporadic anti-Muslim violence. Um, Botubalasena, we've seen, is anti-Muslim, also anti-Christian, 969, mostly anti-Muslim, recently a little bit of anti-Chinese sentiment, right? We started to see this uh, formulated against foreigners, more generally, people who are not true Myanmar's. Um, one of the really interesting differences comes in the relationship to democracy, liberalism, pluralism. So 969 monks have been 
involved in the pro-democracy movements as well. Shui Nawa Seattle, uh was kind of known as the NLD monk. He actually got kicked out of his monastery in Yangon for hosting uh, political things. He is one of the prominent sort of anti-Muslim uh, or monks who's been preaching uh, in anti-Muslim ways. On the other hand, Bochu Balasena monks have been very explicit in their criticism of democracy, their criticism of liberalism. They see democratic, liberal uh, tendencies as actually destroying the prospects for a Sinhalese Buddhist identity, right? That, that the multiculturalism that comes along with democracy and liberalism is the primary threat. I mean, that's that's the, the, the conduit through which uh, Muslim domination is, is going to be allowed. Um, on, and and, and Bhutu Balasena also then, of course, decidedly anti-plural, anti-multicultural, but 969 being mainly against Muslims of necessity has to tolerate a certain degree of pluralism and multiculturalism, particularly ethnic pluralism, because there are a number of different uh, minority ethnic groups in Myanmar that are uh, Buddhist as well, right? So we've got a, a, a degree of acknowledgement of pluralism um, with regard to, to 969. One of the biggest differences, and, and this is going to be sort of where I come around to at the end very soon, um, is, is the relative socioeconomic and political situations of, of both of these countries and of Buddhists in the countries, right? So both have Buddhist uh, majorities, but Sri Lankan Buddhists are coming from a moment of strength, right? A, a moment of having having almost utterly defeated uh, the Tamil Tigers in, in, after a long-running civil war, where there are no challengers, essentially, to the, to the Sinhala character of the nation. And, and where, you know, Sri Lanka is by no means an economic powerhouse, but not necessarily uh, at, at the level that Myanmar is right now. But, but Burmese people are coming from decades and decades of, of, of poverty, of enforced isolation, uh, and are in the midst of an incredibly uncertain transition, right? So, so there, are, there are all these kind of local power dynamics where it's unclear who's going to emerge with power or authority in any given case, both locally and at the national level. So you've, you've got groups in very different situations, both making use of this fear, right? right both tapping into the, and finding compelling this fear of Muslim domination or of non-Buddhist domination. And, and they both seem to be in circumstances where we think, how in the world can you justify this, this sort of fear, right? How in the world in Sri Lanka could you justify a concern that Muslims are going to take over when you have such a clearly Sinhalese Buddhist national uh, kind of identity there? So, so what can we say about, about this? And what have, have some other folks said about this? These, these movements are both, I think, uh, clearly expressing intolerance, but in the context of, of religious nationalism, they're asserting the Buddhist character of their, their nation and their state. Um, there are, I think, as I've gone through, a number of similarities in orientations, in tactics, and rhetoric, although these are consistently formulated in response to local conditions and local dynamics, right? So the campaigns that each of these groups take up are in response to particularly local concerns. We really haven't seen much halal, anti-halal agitation in Myanmar, for example. Um, it's, it's unclear, I think, and really difficult uh, because of the sort of pro-Buddhist versus anti-Muslim dynamic that I talked about before. It's unclear the extent of public support for these movements. But there's definitely sort of strong evidence that what they are doing is 
is even if there's not widespread public support for violence against Muslim or Christian populations, they are tapping into uh, existing prejudice and beliefs that are pretty widely held, even if people aren't acting on those on a regular basis. Um, some scholars have, have configured Botu Balasena in particular, excuse me, as a, as a response to modernization and to modernity in particular, right? So to, to concerns about what will arise with national identity with regard to pluralism, loss of control over an economy that's increasingly sort of globalized and out of the hands of local actors. Uh, what, what about women's rights? What that, what that means for traditional notions of, of morality and, and um, social hierarchy, the decline of a religious community, the decline of religious practice that seems to accompany sort of modernization, again, concern for moral degradation. Um, Kalinga Tudor Silva, a scholar who looks at, at Bodo Balasena in, um, in Sri Lanka, has suggested that, that Sinhalese Buddhists sort of see themselves as vulnerable or that, sorry, that they are vulnerable to market exploitation, to a cultural onslaught that some of them see as coming from Western regimes and, and uh, the, the sort of local agents of Westerners, so NGOs and women's groups and indigenous uh, groups. Well, I think that there's some validity to that claim, that some of these are expressing a kind of angst and anxiety over uh, what gets lost in the transition to, to modernity. It's generally not expressed in these terms. Right? And I think we need to look a little further uh, and a little deeper to kind of look at some of the ways in which Buddhists in both of these countries are expressing their concern. Right? Where does this fear of Islam come from and, wh and where, where does this anxiety over the Buddhist character of, of, of the nation come from? And so what I want to end with today is, is I think, a complementary framing um, you know, that, that, that attaches, I think, to some of the other explanations of why and how these movements have emerged. And I want to look at anxiety over the persistence or the existence of Buddhism as a religion, and in particular, the Buddhasasana, this term that I mentioned before that kind of refers to the continued existence of the Buddha's teachings themselves and of, of people's access to them. Right? So without the Buddha's teachings, without monks to teach it and pass it on, then regular people wouldn't have access to that. Right? And that takes away the possibility of enlightenment. Right? If there was no Buddha to have taught these things, we never would have learned it. No one would have ever stumbled on, on this. And so, so without the presence of Buddhism, then, then there is no sort of end goal, right? There is, uh, this is how a lot of uh, Theravada Buddhists sort of um, formulate this. So that having been said, one of the Buddha's central teachings is of impermanence. Right? So nothing, even the Buddha's teachings in, in this era, at least, um, will last forever. Right? And, and there are predictions about how long the Buddha's sasana will last. Right? So what you get in Theravada Buddhist countries is a real anxiety over the persistence of the sasana, over the fact that, you know, that Buddhism still remains, that the teachings still remain to tap into. And a general agreement that in the arc of the existence of the Buddha's teachings, he taught them, they were available, uh, people could, could use them, and we're already in the downward swing, right? That we've, we've already passed the, the, the apex and, and we're now gradually descending into moral degradation. So really, Buddhists are fighting a holding pattern. All we can do 
is is just continue to sort of practice uh, our our morality as much as we can, and also fight off any threats to the continued existence uh, of Buddhism, in particular, to the dominance of Buddhism in the few countries where it remains. Again, this is how I, I think a lot of Theravada Buddhists are, are configuring this. And periods of, of change are ones that elicit particular anxiety over the defense of the sasana and the, and the existence of the sasana. So colonial encounters in Sri Lanka, there was concern that the British were criticizing, were destroying Buddhism, leading to this kind of revitalization that began in the 1920s. In Burma, um, the British had deposed uh, the monarch and they chose not to institutionally support the sangha, which led to, in the Burmese view, deterioration of the morality of the monks. And if the monks aren't moral, then who's going to teach the lay people? And you're going to get this uh, unvirtuous um, circle here. And this anxiety has surfaced uh, over the last um, 50 to 60 years with re uh, relation to capitalism, to communism, to other ideologies as well. And, and I think that it's fundamental to Theravada Buddhism uh, in some ways, in some ways very positive. Right? As, as a kind of motivating factor to get people to practice, to get people to sort of refocus and, and rededicate themselves to their religion. But where I'm getting at here is that it doesn't matter if empirically Buddhist national identity is strong or dominant in any given place. The inherent fragility and impermanence of the sasana means that it's always potentially a threat and that there's always this narrative and fear and anxiety over what is going to happen to the sasana. And precisely because we see this same phenomenon in two, again, two countries that are positioned very differently with Myanmar in a much more uncertain transition and Sri Lanka in a much more, in a relatively more stable uh, situation. I wanna suggest that, it, that one thing that we can draw from it, it means that responding to the empirical socioeconomic conditions, political concerns, social fears, all those things isn't, going to be sufficient in this case, right? That, that even when, uh, in the case of Sri Lanka, a Sinhalese Buddhist community is incredibly strong, has just won a freaking war, right? They, they, there's still this anxiety over their place and, and the persistence of, of Buddhism. And to me, what that suggests is the need to develop an internal discourse, develop or promote a discourse that's internal to Theravada Buddhism, um, within the sasana about the appropriate way of promoting the sasana, of promoting Buddhism, of defending Buddhism, or maybe radically of, of getting rid of the idea or challenging the idea that, that the sasana is something that even needs to be protected in this case. And it's a discourse that happens very quietly in both of these countries. Uh, there's probably a minority of monks and maybe a few lay people who are expressing something like this, right? Something that, that takes the defense of the sasana, the promotion of the sasa, sasana, and alters it from, you know, a sort of anxiety-producing fear that, that can lead to violence against groups seen as a threat against the sasana um, to a sort of positive motivation for practice. And so as, a, as an example, just to close here, I want to leave you with the words of, of a Buddhist monk in Myanmar who's involved in uh, interfaith peacebuilding work, uh, one of the few in, in Mandalay, Upper Burma, um, kind of the Buddhist heart of the country. And so when asked about the defense of the sasana um, and, and how 969 con contributes to that and configures that, he said, quote, 
In my opinion, you don't have to protect the religion. It will protect itself. It's been strong enough to survive for nearly 3,000 years. Defense of the sasana means that you follow the practice and you give right direction to the people. That's all it means. Acting like 969 monks do does not protect our religion. It only invites enemies. Thanks very much.